Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick, and this is Season 1, Episode 1, Sugar and Spice. We've got a great lineup for you today, because today I'm going to be interviewing my dear friend and well-known Toronto author, Joan O'Callaghan. Joan was the recipient of the Golden Apple Award from Queen's University Faculty of Education for Excellence in Teaching. She was also named Professor of the Year by the OISE U of T Students' Council, as well as Most Engaging English Instructor and Most Inspirational Instructor. She is the author of three educational books, as well as at least two e-shorts, one titled George and one for Elise, both brought to you by Carrick Publishing. Her short story, Stooping to Conquer, appeared in the 2012 anthology EFD1 Starship Good Words from Carrick Publishing. And uh, the reading that I'll be doing for today's Readers on the Run is a short story by Joan O'Callaghan titled Sugar and Spice, and it appeared in the 2013 anthology 13 by the Maydams of Mayhem. And that was also brought to you by Carrick Publishing. So we've got a great lineup today, including giveaways and writer's tips. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to dial up and get Joan O'Callaghan on the line. Let it rot. Hello. Hello, is this Joan O'Callaghan? This is indeed Joan O'Callaghan. Well, wonderful to talk to you. Good morning. And good morning to you. And welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast, and you are our very first author interview, so thank you. I am very honored. Thank you. I've got to tell our listeners that the reason that Joan is our first interview is because she's been a dear friend for, I think it's been around 20 years, and... Because we're such good friends, I just knew I could rope Joan into this. So thank you, Joan. I really appreciate it. And we'll definitely have you back later in 2018. Wonderful. Excellent. So I have a few questions for you. Are you ready? I am. All right. Let's do it. Um, you've been a teacher for a really long time, and I know More that you're... years than I'd like to admit to publicly, yes. Okay, then I won't ask you how many years. <laughs> that was on my list of questions, but I won't ask it. Just out of respect. How's that? <laughs> um, now, I know that your teaching career has evolved a great deal over the years. Um, can you tell me about some of the highs and lows and uh, what message you most want to impart? Um, I guess we should tell our listeners what you're teaching currently, and that'll put it into the right context. Okay. Well, the history is very simply this. I began life as many, te- well, not life, but I began my career as many teachers do as a high school teacher. My subjects are English and drama, dramatic arts. Um, And then from there, I had a wonderful time in the classroom working with kids. 
I had the good fortune to go to Queen's University as a teacher educator, training high school English teachers, and then on to OISE, which is the Faculty of Education at the, the University of Toronto, and that's where I still am, and my subject is English. Excellent. So you know something about the written arts. and um, well, I hope I know something about teaching it. I'm not sure I know that. Yes, yes. Well, I think yes. that teaching it, it helps to, to um, cement what you know about the technical side, at least, you know, with oh, nothing else, right? Absolutely. Uh, so what messages do you want to give to your students? Because they're going to be out there teaching people as well in this, this um, writing life that we love. Well, this is the message. Um, and it, it really relates to what I learned from working in the, the high school classroom. When you ask people, why do we teach English, you'll often hear, oh, they want to impart uh, our great literary heritage, or they want to teach skills you know, like spelling and grammar. And all of these things are relevant. But what it all comes down to, if you strip away all of those things, what you are left with, is something that makes us all human, and that is the importance of story in our life. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Oh, story helps us to imagine other worlds, other people, other lives. And what we do when we teach English is we give students the tools, first of all, to access those stories, to put themselves into those stories and to understand them. And then we give them the tools on the converse, to tell their own stories in an effective manner. And that's what I want my own students to understand, because not everybody who goes through their classes is going to be an English major, but they should come away from their classes with the sense of the importance of story in their own lives. Absolutely. We always bemoan the the missing empathy in our, our times. And uh, I think that yeah. simple conveyance of stories, the simple expression of our experience, I think that that does. It adds a layer of humanity to everything. Very much so. Uh, to me, it's what makes us human. And uh, it, it's very important. So that is really the, the underlying lesson of when I work with my own teacher candidates. Yes, I teach them all about how to plan lessons and how to plan units and how to mark things and what strategies, you know, we should use with poetry and such. But underneath it all, I look at ways to engage students, to really get students to engage with the material in an effective and in a pleasant and enjoyable manner. It should be a pleasurable experience for them. Absolutely. And I mean, I was all set to ask you about the teaching of the technical skills and how that had informed your writing. But we've gone way beyond that in just a simple <laughs> few sentences. And um, But I mean, the technical skills are important too, but they oh, are totally. something that it does come with practice and it does yeah. come with paying attention to your craft, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, the reason that I'd wanted to focus on the technical side is mm -hmm. just because your stories are so well structured. And it may come down to a question of you've gone so far past with the technical side of writing that you just don't even notice it anymore. But your stories are very well put together. They, they flow really in perfect story structure. Well, thank you. And I think, again, that relates back to the teaching aspect of it. Well, actually, it relates to two things. I think that if you're going to write you have to read. Yes. And when you read, almost by osmosis, you absorb those technical structures um, and those, um, you know, those elements that you need to know. And also in 
the teaching of it, you become aware. It, it, to me, teaching teachers is what I call meta-teaching. It's teaching about teaching. And you have to have a very firm grasp on what these things are yes. before you can help others to understand how to convey them. Yes, absolutely. Um, we, we kind of have a saying in our family that if you read a lot, you can tell people who read a lot because they'll often mispronounce things. Um, you know, we all grow up with our little colloquialisms. Uh, my family were East Coasters. And so there's a lot of the language that we do and don't hear when we're in these little pockets of society. But because I'd always read a lot, I always knew the words. And so my husband will laugh at me quite often when I'll mispronounce something. I know darn well what it means. I know the word very well. But in my experience, I haven't heard it spoken a lot, so I'll end up mispronouncing it, which is just, it's kind of funny. You know, you can tell somebody who's read a lot because they know words that they can't even say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've had that experience. Yes, yes, I'm yeah. sure you have. I mean, you've had so many people go through your classroom. I'm sure you've had that experience many times. I have. I want to talk about the awards that you've won because uh, I'm telling our listeners that you really are a very good writer and um, I want to put a little bit of credibility to what I'm saying. You won first place in a short story contest and I want you to tell me about that and one of your stories was also a runner-up for the Boney Pete Award. I'd like you to tell me a little bit about both stories and about how the winning those awards does... Um, how that industry recognition does have a play in, in what you're doing and how it doesn't, because I know that there is, there's a limit to how much it can inform what you're doing as well. But right. I think it does have some impact, just the same, so we should give it that credit, you know. Can you tell me about both of those stories and what awards they won and, you know? Absolutely. Yes, the, um, my first uh, recognition, if you want to call it that, was the being the runner-up for the Boney Pete Award or a runner-up for it. Um, I had written a story called Runaway. It stemmed from a discussion I had with my nephew, which is where I get a lot of my, my ideas. And I really enjoyed the story. I had fun writing it. And then I submitted it with no particular expectations. <clears throat> and hello. Yes. <laughs> it was a wonderful surprise. So there was, that was the first one. Then the second one, uh, I found out just, by accident, really. I used to go down to Belleville every summer and take uh, a creative writing course with Rosemary O'Bear, whom you know quite well. Yes. And I was in the library one day, and there was a notice posted there for a contest. There's a small BC publisher called Polar Expressions, and I believe this is an annual competition that they have for short stories and for poetry. And it, the, But the short stories are flash fiction. And flash is very, very short, which requires a certain skill set all in itself. And I've never written flash before. I think the limit was, I may be wrong here, 700 or 750 words for a short story. For, for our listeners, uh, I'm just going to interject for a second, and I'm Thank sorry you. for interrupting, Joan, but um, many of our listeners may not know exactly what flash fiction is. And um, most of us writers, not all, but many of us find flash fiction to be a really huge challenge. Think of it in terms of you have so much to say as a writer most flash, flash fiction sets its limit at a thousand words. And now if you are a writer, I challenge you to say all the things you want to say about anything in a thousand words. So that's your homework. After you're done listening to our podcast today, uh, don't go anywhere right now, though. Joan's going to continue. <laughs> well, as 
no, it was a, a flash fiction thing. And I, I, <clears throat> I, I took the notice down to the library and I took it home and I, I thought about it and I thought about it. And then I thought, why not? I had a story idea that was rolling around in my head. And I worked on it and I did. I managed to bring it down to the required number of words. It was, as you say, it was not easy. It was very, very challenging. We have a lot to say. We, well, this is it, and this forces you to really take it down to the bare bones. Yes. But in a way that is still engaging and that gets the message, gets the story across. But I did, I wrote the story, and again, I had no particular expectations. I submitted it. I submitted it mainly because I thought it would be good for me to do this because I'm not a person who generally enters competitions. But I, I sent it in, and um, after... A couple of months, I got a letter back from the publisher saying that they had received thousands of entries. At first, I thought they were exaggerating, but later I discovered that, in fact, they probably were not. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, but no, this, at this point, all they told me was that they had eliminated, I think, two-thirds of them, and the remaining third were going to go into this anthology, and mine had been selected for the anthology, which meant that it was still in the running for a prize. So I thought it was fine. There was a contract, which I signed and returned to them. And I was just happy that it was going to be in the book. Yes. For me, that was already a prize. I, I was very happy about that. And um, time passed. The book is called That Golden Summer, and it came out in December a couple of years ago. And it's a beautiful book. And again, the publisher book. is Polar Expressions. So yes, if any of our uh, listeners are looking for it, it's called That Golden Summer. And it's published by Polar Expressions. They're based in uh, British Columbia. So the, and then they, the book was coming out, and they sent us all, you know, a long email telling us, you know, how we can get our copies and this type of thing. And then they said, scroll down for the prize winners. So I scrolled down, and there I was next to first prize. Wow, you must and have had quite a rush. I got in touch with, so I think I may even have gotten in touch with you at that time. Yes. I got in touch with you, and I think I got in touch with our friend Melody Campbell. And I said, would you do me a favor? Go to this website, because I'm not sure I'm seeing this right. And Mel said to me, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> and your story is the first one in the book, oh, yes. which, which <laughs> tells its standing in the book of a, a, over a 1,000 contestants. So that's really wonderful. So, you know, and, and what I want to know is, mm-hmm. did that give you a renewed boost in your writing? It did, because what the, the impact that it had on me was it was a tremendous boost to my self-confidence. I am new to writing fiction, really, and going public with what I've written, and so this gave me a tremendous sense of confidence in my ability to do this. Yes, and just to tell our listeners, Joan is not a new writer by a long shot. Joan has many books under her belt, but it's really only been, well, we've known each other through the Sisters in Crime. I'm going to give them a quick plug because they are a wonderful organization, and they've got a Toronto branch. If you're looking for a place to kibitz with other crime writers in particular, Sisters in Crime is a great place. I I always have only good things to say because I've met so many wonderful people, including Joan. And um, so Joan is more new to the creative writing and in, in the crime writing aspect, but not a new writer. No, this is true. I've been actually a scribbler all my life. But, but this was really, but getting into writing and getting into crime writing is something new. And this really gave me a tremendous psychological boost. Yes. 
Yes, I know. And it's just, it's a bit of a rush. But there are limits to how much contests would drive your writing to. I mean, as a writer, I think you've got to be, you've got to connect with your industry, which you and I have, we've put a lot of work into connecting with our industry. And I'm very proud of that. I mean, we've made many, many great friends. But you also have to maintain an independence of your art because this is the thing. I mean, literature of any type and any genre is really a crossover art. Painters know that they have to go away in their studio and they have to paint for hours and hours and hours. But writers have to straddle both worlds. I mean, we have to be part-time in the garret and part-time out in the real world, especially these days. I'm glad to hear you say that because I think a lot of people don't understand that. That it you, you have to be, you have to engage with the outer world. You can't just lock yourself up with your computer. Um, there's, there's too much involved. Everything from, you know, talking to people and getting ideas and getting information and listening to how people talk to each other and interact with each other to getting out there and, and letting people know that you have something. Exactly. And actually, you hit on something there almost almost incidentally, and I want to bring it more to the fore. Dialogue. Nothing will turn a reader off more than, uh, I would say, untrue dialogue. Dialogue that you just know never took place anywhere in the real right. world. Um, and being out there and hearing dialogue between people is so important. Oh, it is. I was at a, a workshop once. Um, I don't know if you were there or not. It was at uh, the Bloody Words Conference. And Maureen Jennings was leading this. And during the coffee break, she sent us all out around the hotel where the conference was taking place to eavesdrop on conversations. Maureen is a real riot. I, 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 I absolutely, I, I have to tell, I don't want to give away anything, but no. one of the Christmas presents I bought is Maureen Jennings' latest book. Um, I think it is called Let the... Joan, help me out. You know what it's called. Let the... I, I do, and I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> just to let people know, Maureen is the author of the Murdoch series. Yes. Which you can watch on television, or you can read the books, or ideally do both. Let Darkness Bury the Dead. That's it. Okay. Yes, and it's uh, another beautiful book by Maureen Jennings. And um, if you've uh, got readers that you love to buy gifts for, please go into the Sleuth of Baker Street and look for Maureen Jennings. You can get, usually get a signed copy of some of her works there. That's my yeah. plug. Sorry, Joan, for interrupting. No, that's fine, because I, I, ho I, I completely endorse that. And Maureen is just a lovely person. But she sent us all out, and that's what we did. Some people went down to the coffee shop. Some people were riding in elevators. Others were hanging around the lobby. But then we all came back, and we reported on these snippets of conversation we'd overheard. Oh, that is wonderful. That's a really good exercise. So when you're done writing your flash fiction, or perhaps before you write your flash fiction as your exercise after this podcast, go out first and listen in on some conversations. Um, try not to be too obvious. You know, you don't want to get arrested. But, uh, but do eat eavesdrop a little and then come back and write your flash fiction. I think you'll be surprised how it will affect what you're writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I want to I talk to you a little bit about Pat, Pat right. O'Callaghan, who was a highly regarded newspaper publisher for many years for both the Edmonton Journal and the Calgary Herald back in and the, the Southern newspaper days. And um, 
I'm a Southamite. I still work for the company that uh, Southam morphed through. Uh, everybody in the business world knows that all companies are going through so many iterations these days. And uh, I'm still with the company that was once Southam. And I still have many friends who were with Southam. And I remember the name Pat O'Callaghan very well. He was incredibly well known. A couple of years ago, um, you published his memoirs. Can you tell us a little bit about Maverick publisher Jay, uh, Jay Patrick O'Callaghan, A Life in Newspapers? I will, but first of all, I mean, thank you very much for that wonderful endorsement of Pat. Um, just to let your readers know or your listeners know, Pat was my husband. And uh, yes, writing the book, or I know I didn't write the book actually, I had the memoirs. Pat wrote them before his death in 1996, so that was quite some time ago. And I had been sitting on them all these years. And finally, it just seemed to me that the time was right to publish them. So, but getting them ready for publication was <laughs> quite, a, quite a task. Yes. Um, the first thing I did, Donna, was line you up. Because, as you said, we've known each other for a long time. We're good friends. We know how the other one thinks and works. Yes. And I knew that I could work with you on these memoirs, and I could retain the spirit in which they were written. Yes, thank which you is for what that. What I wanted to do because I knew you, you you would honor that, and you did. Thank you, thank you. It was a real pleasure working on it. It was just well, it was a pleasure working with you on them. But the first thing I had to do was was a very very long task because all I had was hard copy. And so I had to take this entire manuscript, and I had to put it into the computer so that uh, you would have something digital to work with, because, of course, that's the way the industry is today. That's exactly right. It's a different world. So that was the first thing to do, what I had to do, was to get a digital copy done. Um, the second thing, then, was, well, of course, we had you on board. Then I needed an editor, because these needed editing. Yes. And I wanted an editor who understood the industry. And I got very, very lucky in that I was able to get Ed Pivovarczyk. Yes, and Ed does know the newspaper industry. In fact, he and I used to pass each other in the old Southern building back in the day. He'd be coming in for the late shift when I was just going out for afternoon break, and we'd often see each other in the building. He's, a, he's a, really an industry standard for editing, and he does know the newspaper industry. Well, I was very fortunate because not only did I get Ed with, with that background, but Ed worked for Pat. See, in addition to the Edmonton Journal and the Calgary Herald, Pat was always also publisher of the Windsor Star. I did not know that. And yes. so Ed yes. actually worked for him. Wow, so you yes, had like Ed, a personal... And so did Rosemary McCracken, who was Ed's wife. I knew Rosemary had, because yeah. you and I had talked about that before, yes. but I didn't realize Ed had. That's terrific. Ed had worked for Pat in Windsor. And so he, he knew the industry... And he knew the person who had written the memoirs. And Ed did an absolutely masterful job on editing those. He was, he was totally professional. He really did. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a beautifully constructed uh, memoir. It's beautifully edited, and it flows really well. And then the next task was I needed to get some endorsements. And again, I was very fortunate. I was able to get Rosemary herself, Rosemary McCracken, um, who had worked for Pat not only in Windsor, but also in Calgary. Oh, wow. Yes, she worked for him at two papers and has maintained that he is the best boss she ever worked for. 
And then I got, and you know, many of your readers will be familiar with her too, Margaret Wenty at the Globe and Mail. Yes. Peggy She's a well-known Toronto character for any of our listeners who don't know. If you have not ever read um, Margaret Wenty's column, Joan, tell them where they can find it. In the Globe and Mail. I believe she writes two or three days a week, but certainly on Saturdays. Um, I'm not exactly sure which section she's in. I think it depends um, a lot on what she's writing about, because as a columnist, she has free reign to write about just about whatever she wants to write. Yes, about. and she's come up with some doozies. <laughs> oh, she's a very, she's a very, very bright woman. She really but is. She, yes, she is a friend of mine. Um, <laughs> she was actually at our wedding, which is how I know her. And she, you know, did a beautiful, wrote a beautiful endorsement of Pat. And as you know, she or of the book, as you know, she also was MC at the launch we had. That's in right. That's right. It was a real pleasure to meet her. I mean, Alec was tickled pink because he has read her column for many years. Yeah. So, and he'll often bring the column into the room and say, "Come on, Donna, you got to look at this." Like, yeah. oh, you yeah. know, her her yeah, columns are really fantastic. To just because they wanted to meet her. Like the, um, and then the third person I was able to bring on board will be familiar to any of your people who live in Western Canada, and that was Catherine Ford. Yes. Catherine wrote the foreword to the book, and she had been Pat's associate editor at the Calgary Herald. She's also a, a Southam columnist. She was a Southam columnist for many years, and also she, I think she served at least one and possibly two terms as president of Mensa Canada. Wow, that's that's quite a credential yeah. right there. Yeah, and Catherine served as MC at the launch that we had in Calgary yes. for the book. Yes, yes. So and then after, once I got all those things together and I had selected some photographs, and I was so glad that you allowed me to put a section of photographs in the book, it was up to you. Well, the pictures are the pictures really give so much depth to a work like this. I mean, and and I find that whenever I read an autobiography or a memoir, pictures put you in the time and the place. It's not just a, it's not just about the people. You can get that from the words. You know who they are when you read their words if you're an avid reader. But to get that extra layer of depth, put yourself in the time and the place and the pictures give you that. Yes, they do. And speaking of pictures, I have to say I was very pleased with the cover design. That uh, was it. Was it uh, Sarah who did the cover? Uh, yes, Sarah? yes. Yeah, she so took the, the photo that the you provided, and she made a, a really striking cover. I, I'm so proud of it. That's Sarah Carrick. She is Alex's cousin. Everybody thinks she's my niece. I mean, she's <laughs> only a couple years younger than me. Come on, people. <laughs> but she's, she's very talented, and I, I really do like that cover. I think it it has dignity. As it well does. As being striking. It does. It's. It's. It, it really. It tells. It tells the story. Yeah. So I was very pleased, and also it was Ed who suggested the title, and uh, Maverick Publisher, which I really like. Yes. Yeah. And so that was really, really the story of how the book uh, came into being, and it was really Pat's dream before he passed to have that book out, and so I was so happy to fulfill really what was one of his last wishes. Yes. Yes. It meant a lot to me. It was a it was a huge thing that you did for him in memory of him. I know. Um, just one more thing about Pat. What I heard over and over from everybody who did know him, because I did not know him personally. I knew of his name, but what I heard over and over was that he was one of those people, especially as a boss. And we all work for a living. If our listeners are out there, you know that if you have a boss who lifts you up, and who wants you to do well, independent of any praise that comes to them. They want you to do well for your own sake. 
what a difference it makes in your working life, no matter what you're doing for a living. I mean, we all have jobs. We're not all well-paid writers. I mean, I work in accounting. I'll be quite honest about that. And that's how I've made my living my whole life. Not my dream job, but, you know, it's a good, decent work and it pays the bills so I can write. Um, when you have a boss in any field that you work in who lifts you up and who is that kind of person that wants your talent to shine, we call it empowerment in business. In the arts, I just call it allowing you to shine, like, you know, allowing another ego to come into the room along with your own. It doesn't mean suppressing your own, but just allowing enough space for other people to do well. And uh, we heard this over and over about Pat when this memoir was coming out. Um, but it doesn't always translate into a private life. And I think in your case it did. And I'd like to hear just a little bit about that. It most certainly did. Everything you heard is correct. Pat was, uh, to quote um, Margaret Wente, he was a giant. He was a giant among Canadian journalists. And, but he was also paradoxically, he was also a bit shy and even humble. But he was larger than the sum of his parts, if that makes sense. Yes. I can go on and on about his talent as a writer, his abilities as a leader, his, his vision for the industry. But yes, in our private life, that definitely translated. I was having a conversation recently with a friend whose daughter had just gone through a, a breakup with somebody. And... Um, you know, what the problems were. And I, I brought up the point about Pat, and I said the difference was, when I met him, that he, and it's what you're saying about empowerment, he helped me to self, through him, I self-actualized. Yes. If that makes sense. That's what I'm looking for, exactly. He provided me with the fertile ground, if you want to put it, in which I could flourish. He provided that kind of an environment within our marriage. He believed in me, and he made me believe in myself. Absolutely, because the Joan I know has always had the technical skills. I've been telling you this for many years, and yes. uh, I think on some level you've known it. But confidence at one time was an issue, wasn't it? I mean, yes. if we're totally honest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And confidence is, you know, it's... Um, lack of confidence is kryptonite to a writer. Absolutely. No, he, yeah. was, he was wonderful that way. He, he, he enabled me in so many ways to, to do this. He understood deadlines when I was working on my second book because I was given a series of fairly tight deadlines. That, as you know, my, my first two books came out, published by Scholastic Canada. And I had very tight deadlines, and I was teaching full-time, so it was quite something. But I had a room to work in when Scholastic said they wanted the manuscript on disc. We're talking the 90s here. Yes. He went out and bought me a state-of-the-art computer. When I had to check a lot of the material that went into the book, um, in those days we weren't, uh, email wasn't um, very commonly used. He went out and got a fax machine for me. Um, you know, it was this was it, and he left me to work on the book, and then he, he had little treats for me as I would get things done. You know, I got this section done and delivered to the editor, and so we went down. We had a room at the, the I forget what it's called now, but it was the Sky Dome Hotel, because we both like baseball. Mm -hmm. You know, stayed overnight and watched the game from our room. Another time, he took me for a weekend to Stratford. He had all these little treats for me to, to help to get me through that process. It makes a huge world of difference. I mean, in this way, you and I have had many conversations. In this way, we kind of live parallel lives, because... Yes. Um, Many of our listeners will know Alec, they'll know him online, or they'll know him personally. And um, having somebody who is a, a big talent in their own rights, but doesn't try to suppress your talent, but tries to foster it, 
I mean, it makes a huge difference in the things we do. I, I can't understate it. Well, Donna, we have to add then that, that there's one more little connection there between Patrick and Alex. They have the same birthday. Oh, October 8th. There we October go. 8th. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is wild. About that day. Yes, there's something about that day, absolutely. <laughs> and Alec was an old Southernite as well. So well, we have that uh, three times connection, you know. That's I'll really wild. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You'd mentioned in that segment about scholastics, and that really segues really well into what I want to ask you next, which is uh, has to do with categories as a writer. And um, um, you're, you're a writer of nonfiction. You're a teacher. You're a writer of teaching and educational literature. You're also a writer of fiction. And within the fictional buckets, you're a writer of both crime and humor. How do you flip from genre to genre so seamlessly? Is there a methodology that you keep in mind that allows you to now say, okay, now I'm writing a humorous piece, so now I am funny, or now I'm writing a serious piece of crime, so now I'm, I'm a very serious, murderous, uh, psychopathic intent uh, person. How do, how do you go from room to room in your mind? Well, thank you for, for, for describing that as seamless. Uh, occasionally I've had to be careful because sometimes my academic writing tends to spill over into my fictional writing and I'll be told, by, you know, fortunately I get some feedback, Joan, you know, kids that age wouldn't understand these words. And I realize that I've, um, you know, kind of accidentally moved into something else. I think really I'm better at it, though, than I used to be. I think what happens is you have to put yourself into the frame. You're writing something and you... You immerse yourself in the world of whatever it is you're working on. Absolutely. And, and that really, to me, is the key. Your, your brain is working. Your imagination is, is roaring ahead. You're picturing the characters. You're picturing uh, what it is they're doing. And the other stuff, it, it's another world that doesn't really impinge on this. So it's a question of putting yourself into the frame. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would say that as writers, we inhabit a lot of different worlds. And if you cannot step into the world mentally that you're writing at the moment, I won't say writing about because you are writing what you're experiencing in your mind. Yes. And if you can't do that, then you really need to practice that skill as a writer because it will come through. The lack of that will come through. The reader knows whether you're really there in your mind or not. It doesn't mean you have to be every place you write about physically, but you have to be there mentally. Yes, you, you've created a world and you have to step, you'll really step inside it. And you, you mentioned another great thing about feedback, because when we do spill over in little ways, whether it's um, being in the wrong world or using the wrong word or the wrong language, that feedback is really valuable as well, especially when you're first beginning, especially in the first 30 years of your writing career. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's important to know whether or not what you have written is going to resonate with a reader. Yes. And this is a way of really you know, piloting or field testing what you've done. Yes. Yes. Your crime stories, because I, I, crime is always my first go-to. It's not my only love by a long shot. Um, I really do believe that I've got one good literary book in me before I die, <laughs> as does every writer. But uh, crime is my first go-to. So I, I would say that your crime stories are really well-crafted and, and often to the point of being downright eerie. Um, I'm thinking of George and yes. Four Elise. 
But uh, there's also for the one that we have on our segment, Readers on the Run today, Sugar and Spice. And maybe this comes from your being a teacher. I'd never thought of that. But um, you often expose the fact that not all children are innocent of of things. Uh, in George in particular, I won't give away the story, but children have another side to them. And um, we love to just blatantly or blanket exonerate children in all ways. And uh, you, you've kind of cut down, and especially in Sugar and Spice. And if our, our readers stay with us for the Readers on the Run section, they're going to love Sugar and Spice. And I won't give away the story, but you seem to know something about children that many of us maybe don't. Well, okay, okay, yes. I, this all, it, it, actually, it was a revelation for me personally. When I look back at what I was writing, I realized that virtually everything I have written features a young person. Wow. And that has got to go back to my years teaching high school. So, yes, they're all teenagers or young adults, maybe early 20s. I don't think I have any protagonists or... Um, well, yeah, I have some villains who are older than that, but that, I'm thinking of Runaway, where the villains are a bit older. But the reality is that, yes, not everybody is nice. And it's not necessarily the fault of the young person who um, commits the crime or who does the evil deed. Sometimes they are simply have been shaped by circumstances, and this is their way of responding to those circumstances. Um, but, yeah, I, I've seen a lot. I've heard a lot. I talk a lot to people. This is another, This goes back to our earlier conversation about being out in the world. Yes. I love to listen to people. I love to hear what they have to say. I love getting together with young people and talking to them and listening to them and picking up what they talk about, what they think about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's a funny one because you mentioned something else that I hadn't thought about, which is going to, you're going to hear this in future episodes. I'll be asking writers about their body of work and what it says about them because you're absolutely right. I'd never thought about that, but I do think that your body of work reaches back into those days as a teacher uh, now that you mention it. Oh, it does. It yeah. absolutely does. It's, I have not fashioned any of my characters after any students that I knew particularly. They're all um, combinations and amalgams of, of people I've known or situations I've heard about. Just but like just like adults, really. Um, uh, I, I mean, as a mother of three, I can tell you they're not perfect, no. but neither are, neither are we as parents. And, no, uh, you know, you, you accept the good and the bad, and you try to teach them to choose to do the right thing wherever they can. Definitely. Now, you mentioned Sugar and Spice, and Sugar and Spice is based quite, well, I won't say directly. There, I, I've, and, you know, I've taken it, and I've gone in my own particular direction with it, but the impetus to write Sugar and Spice came from an actual event that happened that a former student of mine who's now teaching, and I won't say where, told me about. Okay, don't give away the story, because I I'll want our listeners to listen to it. But everyone out there in podcast land, when you're listening to Sugar and Spice later on in this podcast, I want you to keep in mind that it was driven or inspired by an actual event. Yes. 
Okay, that's enough said about that. Okay. Um, I want to talk about Colors of Canada because you've been emailing me over the last couple of weeks, and this is wonderful. I've got a big grin on my face right now, (laughs) that you've been getting orders from all over the country by uh, venues that want to stock Colors of Canada on their front shelves. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Colors of Canada began life quite a long time ago, actually. It was my second book. It is, in short, a compendium of nearly 400 interesting places across Canada to visit. The original book was called Places to Go, People to See, Things to Do, and it was published by Scholastic, and it was a bestseller at that time. And um, the book um, sold out. It was sold, the rights were sold to a Quebec publisher who translated it into French, Editage Canada. And, or I think it's at our Editage Edition, I'm not sure. I know it's Editage something. And um, as I said, the, the book sold out, and eventually the rights reverted to me. But I always felt that that book still had legs. And so again, Donna, I approached you and asked if you would be interested in working with me on this, and you again graciously agreed to. And, and it was again, a real genuine treat, too, I have it to was add. Fun. And you know, the collaboration worked again. Yes, yes. You, know, you you told me what I needed to do, and I told you what I needed, and we, we were able to bring it together. And we involved Jane Coriel. The original book had photographs and logos that had been provided by many of the sites, and Scholastic's own artists had also done line drawings. Um, so, But I had to find my own artist this time, so I have my friend Jane Coriel, who's a very gifted artist, Jane did a number of the line drawings, and at her suggestion, the book also took on a, a component of being a coloring book. Yes, yes. And the thing is, uh, for, for listeners who don't know, Jane Coriel is a well-known Toronto set designer. If you go to, to plays or shows in the Toronto region, you've probably seen at least one of her sets at different times. She's also a gifted artist, and she did all of the line drawings that appear in Colors of Canada, and they are really beautiful. And they are intended to be colored. They're simple line drawings, black and white, and they're intended so that your kids in the back seat when you're traveling across this country to various venues can bring along a set of colors and and can fill in all of these beautiful pictures. But, but I want to also highlight the, the content, the, the, um, details about these various venues, over 400, as you said, you've written about them, you've told people where to look, what to look for, what to do while you're there, you've given all these great suggestions, so it, it's just a wonderful piece of work. Well, thank you. It's, it's a labor of love. When I worked for the newspapers myself, I uh, worked for a number of years for the Canadian Daily Newspaper Publishers Association, which no longer exists. I was manager of their educational services division. I had to travel across Canada. I was constantly traveling. It got to be a bit of a joke. I'd get on a plane, and the um, flight attendants would remember me from the, the week before. <laughs> it was a bit like George Clooney and Up in the Air. Yes. <laughs> I was traveling a lot. And when I was in town, the people at the newspaper would show me the sites, and I loved it. I loved going to these historical places. I loved going to these places of natural beauty. I loved seeing these quirky places, and I used to keep all the brochures and all the information about them, and I kept a big fat file, and I said, one day, one day I'm going to write a book, and one day then I did. 
And that was how it all began. And I still feel that way. And I'm still collecting information. Donna, if we put this book out again, it'll probably be twice as big as it is probably, now. Probably, yes, yes, because it was originally places <laughs> to go. It, it, I mean, we live in such a wonderful country. Let me just... Uh, and I got that from my parents. My parents came to this country as refugees. And they were so happy to be here. They loved Canada. They were grateful to Canada for saving their lives. And they transferred that love to their children. My father used to tell us Canada is the best country in the world. And you know what? I think he was right. And on that note, I'm going to say happy birthday, Canada, because this yes. book uh, came out in its current iteration in uh, honor of Canada's 150th birthday. And... Um, it's made a huge splash. People are, are ordering it to stock on shelves, and I want our listeners to look for it. You can find it on Amazon, in fact, um, Colors of Canada, or you can get in touch with Joan or myself um, to, to learn more about this great book. If you book. do go the Amazon route, the best thing is to put my name into the search bar. Okay. Because otherwise you're going to get all sorts of other things popping up. Yes. So yes, look up Joan O'Callaghan, Colors of Canada. O'Callaghan. And don't forget the apostrophe in O'Callaghan. That's right. Yes. Yes. And the U in colors because we are in Canada. We really want our American and European friends to to look for this book as well. But just when you're looking it up, don't forget the U in colors. That's just a little point, but it's an important one. Um, now, the thing is, uh, it, it really it really came to life. The book really came to life brilliantly. And I want to thank Jane through this as well, Jane yeah. Coriel, because she just added another layer to the whole thing. She certainly did. Yeah. And she was a pleasure to work with. Yes, she always is. Mm-hmm. Um, tips for writers. One of the things I promise our listeners is that every single episode will have a tip for writers. And uh, I forewarned you what kind of tip I wanted from you. And um, you've put years of work and research and effort into learning how to market. I'm not going to ask you to expose all your secrets. Um, people have to learn some things on their own. But can you give us, can you give us one thing that you've er- learned in your hard-earned knowledge in the area of marketing? Um, selling books, let's be real simple. Self-promotion as an author. What can you tell our listeners? originally to talk about what works and what doesn't work. Yes. And I think let's quickly deal with what doesn't work. And what doesn't work is doing nothing. Exactly. And I'm meeting so many people who just, well, I'm a writer, I'm not a, or I'm an author, I'm I'm, I'm not a business person. Exactly. If I build it, they will come. And believe me, if you build it, they will not come. They will not come by the hundreds. No, you have to get out, unless you are, first of all, I, well, there, there's about three situations in which you don't have to do this. One, of course, is for people, and there are people, and I know some, who write only for family and friends. Yes. And that's fine. You don't, if, if that's the case, then you don't need to get out there and market your book. The second one is if you happen to have lots and lots of money and you're able to hire someone to do all that for you. Yes. Uh, but you have to be very careful who you do hire. I've heard some, some horror stories. Yes. And the third thing is if you happen to be a really, really big name, think Margaret Atwood. Yes. Then you don't need to do it. The publisher will do it all for you. But even with the, the traditional publishers now, when you submit a manuscript, you are going to be asked to submit at the same time a marketing plan. Yes. So really the onus is on you. So I think the first thing you have to do really is to rejig your thinking. That 
being an author is only part of the puzzle. You are, you're in the business now of selling that book. You have a product, that's your book, your story, and you've got to get out there and you've got to find readers and buyers for it. Absolutely. So, you know, it, and to me, uh, probably the biggest thing that has worked for me, I call it the Johnny Appleseed approach. Remember Johnny Appleseed? I love that. I love that. That is, that is perfectly said. You try things. You just try things. You know, he went across the country, as the legend goes, scattering his apple seeds, some of which, you know, fell on barren ground and nothing happened, but some of them sprouted. And you might not see that right away, but uh, that's what, so you have to keep trying things. Even if they seem a bit bizarre and a bit strange, you try things. Yes. And and you make yourself memorable. The other part of the the puzzle is, and it it may be part of the apple seed to the Johnny Appleseed thing, is network. Network, network, network. It's part of that getting out there into the world that we talked about earlier. Talk to people. Yes. Uh, Don't be afraid to, to, to approach people. Don't be afraid to try things. Another one of your authors, and I don't want to steal any thunder from that particular person, told me that wherever she goes, uh, she published a book with you, I guess, last year. She always takes a copy with her, and she says she never fails to sell it. Excellent. I think I know who you mean, because if you're looking for tips for writers, you can't look much further than her. But as you said, we won't steal her thunder, because I do want to have her on as well. Yes, I thought you might. But it's that idea. It's that get out there in the world, network, talk to people, try things, read. You know, I, I subscribe to Writer's Digest and The Writer, and often they will have tips in there. Yes, Writer's Digest is a, really a gold mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, not everything will work, and sometimes you'll come away saying, you know, that'll call on a woman, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But then uh, you'll get surprises. Yes. In, uh, I mean, what you're talking about with colors is very simply this. I had been in contact with all these sites across Canada. It was a very, very lengthy process because I was asking for photographs and logos. And many of them, you know, were very good about supplying them. And now that the book is out, I wrote a note, an email note to every single one of those sites that gave me a logo or photograph. I thanked them, thanked them for their interest in the project, told them that I sincerely hoped, and I do, that the book will draw a lot of visitors to their site. And... um, then, you know, then I put in the ask for. I said, I hope that they would consider making the book available in their gift and souvenir shop. You have to ask people for what you and want. And, course, and we don't and, teach know, our we, children this from a, yeah, from a yeah, going on my little yeah, psychological yeah, bent for a moment. Yeah. We don't teach our children this from a young age. It's not about me, 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 or grubbing for this or grubbing for that. No, it's no. that people genuinely are caught up in their own lives, and you can't fault them for that. They no. don't know what you want. They're not mind readers. I and mean, if it you, wasn't a, no, it wasn't a hard sell. All I said was, I hope you will consider making the book available you know, in your gift shop or souvenir shop, and then I gave them the pricing structure and how to get it, how to get the book. Yes. And as you know, we, we've you've had, had, you've nice had a mass of orders, and I'm grinning again yeah. now because yeah. I just love that. I love to see our authors successful, and especially a dear friend like you. Uh, I just you. love to see it. Um, now, all of this networking leads in really nicely to what I want to ask you about the Deadly Dames. Do you, mi- do you mind if I ask you about the Deadly Dames? No. 
them uh, the Deadlies will be happy to be talked about. All right. I know you've got a number of public appearances uh, with the Dames lined up for 2018. Yeah. And I know that seasonally you do take breaks because there are times when it's hard to get people out and it's too hard traveling and things like that. First question, who are the Dames? The Deadly Dames is a group of authors. And all of us are, have been published. Most of us have been, I think all of us actually, if we've won awards or we've been uh, finalists for awards, there are basically, well, there are six of us in the group. One is not a writer. We call her our universal reader. But the other, um, the rest of us are. They are obviously myself, Kathy Astolfo, Catherine Astolfo, Melody Campbell, Janet Bolin, and Allison Bruce. And we are a writing critique group. We meet regularly. Uh, always nice meetings. We always start with a, a potluck lunch, which helps set the, the tone. And we, we, we critique each other's work. And then we, we, but we go out. And I'm the person who gets, who, who is mainly the contact for these events. I'm not the only one, but I do most of it. And we go to libraries, we go to bookstores, we'll go to other events too if, if we're invited. We're, you know, certainly not uh, limiting ourselves to anything. And we, our, our appearances generally um, take the format of a panel discussion. We have a number of topics that we talk about, but really what we want is our audience to ask us questions. But in the event that they don't, we're ready. Uh-huh, you're ready with that. We also do readings from our work. Yeah. And the books are always available for sale after. That is terrific. That's really good to get out with a bunch of, of uh, fellow writers like that. It's all part of the networking, and it's all part of name recognition. I mean, I'm big on furthering your own name recognition. I mean, you've known me long enough, Joan, that I can yes. tell you... Um, don't tell anyone else, though. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> that really, you know, I, I feel... As a writer, I've come from no recognition, zero recognition, and it's something that I've worked very, very hard on. Um, some people fall into, you know, the old saying, some people fall into greatness and some have it thrust upon them. Well, I mean, we won't talk about greatness, but we can talk about recognition. Uh, some people have recognition thrust upon them. They're born into it. And uh, others have to work very hard to acquire That's it. Correct. And I'm very proud of the efforts I've made in that area. And I know and you, you are be. as well. And, um, it, it, you know, I can't, I can't understate this uh, to our, our listeners who may be writers out there. Having your name known is something that you have to work on. It's, it's a real, it's your task. It's one of your primary tasks. Writing a great product is your first task. Honing your craft is your first task. And then getting out there. And you have to, and it's actually very similar to the advice I give my students. Because they'll come and they'll ask me about, um, you know, resumes and interviews and this type of thing. And I'll say, it's not enough to just be good. I said, there's a lot of good people out there. I said, you have to let people know that not only are you good, but that you're better than the others. Yes. And whether you are or you aren't, you have to create that impression. So, yes, you have to get out there. And you need to do what you need to do to get known. Yes. Um, you know, some of the funnier things I've tried, when with um, Pat's book, with um, Maverick Publisher, I had a couple of signings at uh, some of the big chapter stores. And I was able to, because it was a newspaper thing, I was able to hit up um, my friends at the Toronto Star, and they gave me a bag full of um, pens, which I could give out to people when they came by to chat with me at the signings. Mm -hmm. And then, because, as you know, Donna, I like to bake. Yes, yes. I baked cookies in the, in the shape of newspapers. 
And I wrapped them all individually in little cellophane thing bags tied with ribbons, and I gave those out. Yes, yes, and it does make an impression. Something it like does that make makes an a huge impression. And in particular, the people who really like the cookies, and this is important, by the way, we mustn't overlook this, were the chapter's employees. Yes. You yes. have to, you know, that's part of your networking. You've um, been really good at this. I mean, this is a, an area where I've been sadly lacking, but you've been really good at getting out to the various bookstores locally and making sure they know who you are and what you write. Oh, you know, it. Um, I, I can't take credit for that. I learned this from reading a book by David Morrell. Now, he's the creator of, of the Rambo character. And what many people don't know is that David Morrell is actually originally Canadian. He comes from Kitchener, Ontario. Wow. Yeah, but he, he talks about this, and he says, when you go to a library or a bookstore, it's not, in particular, a bookstore. He said, um, what's not important is that hour or two that you're in the store, because you'll leave and that's it. What's important is while you're in that store is the connections that you forge with the store manager and the store employees, because once you leave, they can continue to promote you. They can position your book so people see it. They can talk about your book. Yes, absolutely. So it's really important to remember that they are part of your network. Yes, and such a critical part because where they put your book makes a huge difference. Your book stays there for months after you've left, you know? Mm -hmm. um, now, I just want to say it's been really wonderful talking to you, Joan. What's next in your writing world? What is the next thing you're going to be working on? Well, um, <laughs> I still have some of my um, education writing that I'm doing, which I also, by the way, really enjoy. And uh, we've just my write. I work with a partner um, because he brings the the background in history and social sciences, and I have my background in English, and we bring the two together. We are just undertaking a project now. It'll be a short teaching uh, resource on the um, the Cambodian uh, massacres, the Khmer Rouge era. So that that that's coming up. But that um, that's something that's been commissioned. But in terms of my own writing, I have a couple of short stories. One of which I am in the revision process with. The other, which is still roiling around in my head, I haven't quite sat down and begun to, to work it out. It's still taking shape. We do this. I always say there's the one you just finished, and Alec actually is the one who kind of coined this for us as a writer. Um, there's three main topics of conversation for any writer, he says. The book you just finished, the book you're working on, and the one that you're about to work on. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And then there's so about the two stories, and then I'm also, um, have the, and this is where the humor comes from, I've been working on some young adult and having a lot of fun with it. I'm working on um, a story. Well, it's not a short story. It's going to be uh, either a short novel or a novella, but I'm thinking short novel. Oh, that would be wonderful to see. kids on a school trip to Austria. Excellent. And I'm bringing together both crime and humor. Excellent. I love so, and that. I'm having just a great time with it. I'm really enjoying that project. I can't wait to see that come out. Joan, well, it's been so good talking to you, and we've covered a lot of ground. I hope we've left something for some other authors to talk about, but it's just such a pleasure <laughs> talking with you that I, I, I couldn't help myself for, uh, from getting your insights on things. I want to wish you a wonderful 2018. You're my first author interview. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, I hope that your 2018 is just skyrockets from this point on. 
Well, thank you, Donna, and I wish you all the same. I've been watching you and watching Carrick Publishing grow and grow and grow, and I keep wondering when you're finally going to have to put yourself into it full time. Yes, um, yes, um, that's a thought, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It really is, but it's been a pleasure talking to you, too, and I'm so honored that you chose me as your first subject. Oh, my pleasure, Joan. Take care now. You, too. Bye-bye. segment of our podcast that I really look forward to each week, and that is our giveaways. And to qualify for the giveaway today, what you need to do is visit our Dead to Rights Facebook page, like the page, and look for the question, what is today's writer's tip brought to you by author Joan O'Callaghan? So look for that question on our Facebook page and correctly answer it. And for all the correct answers, I will do a draw and send one lucky listener an Amazon gift certificate. And I know most people like Amazon gift certificates, especially this time of year when there's lots of great January sales. So do that, sign up, and answer the question. Thank you. real treat for listeners today on our Readers on the Run section of Dead to Rights, the podcast. Today we bring you a short story titled Sugar and Spice by Joan O'Callaghan, which was featured in 13, an anthology of crime stories by the Maydams of Mayhem, brought to you by Carrick Publishing in 2013. So, without further ado, Sugar and Spice by Joan O'Callaghan. My neighbor's golden retriever, Molson, found Becky Robinson's naked body under a dock while chasing a piece of driftwood. The 15-year-old had been beaten, my neighbor confided later that evening. The finger of suspicion pointed at Henri Charbonneau. Henri was a French teacher at Lakeview High School in Hidden Harbor where I taught English. A relatively new arrival from Montreal, He was strikingly handsome in that particularly Gallic way. He always looked as if he needed a shave. His straight brown hair was just a tad long and fell over his right eye. Tall and lean, he wore his clothes as if he were in the pages of Gentleman's Quarterly instead of a musty classroom. The girls and even the women teachers described him as drop-dead gorgeous. Unfailingly courteous, Henri was utterly professional with his coterie of admirers. The morning Becky's body was found, he called the school office to say he had a family emergency to deal with and would be away for several days. Chaos reigned at the school the next day. The police took over the office of our principal, Ellie Tomlinson. Grief counselors set up shop in the student services department, and students poured in to weep, be comforted, and miss classes. Becky's friends, Crystal, Jen, and Madison, spent the entire day there, except for intervals when they were seen in the halls and cafeteria, loudly sniffing, eyes red. 
Schools are small communities, and Lakeview was soon awash in ugly rumors, stoked by Becky's friends and Henri's absence. Rumors that placed Becky with Henri. The rest was easy to guess. Before long, the entire town was whispering that Henri had raped Becky and then killed her to hush up the crime. It was all nonsense, of course. Henri would never lay a finger on Becky. Becky and her friends were all students in my grade 10 English class. I didn't care much for Becky, and I didn't like her three friends either. They were pretty in a cookie-cutter way, with long blonde hair, makeup, two tight jeans, and clingy tops that left little to the imagination. It didn't help that they were arrogant, lazy, and generally obnoxious. Still, I was shocked beyond words and grieved for a young life cut off so early and so violently. Of course the police spoke to me. I was Becky's English teacher and knew Henri better than most. The English department shared an office with modern languages. Henri's desk was next to mine, and our timetables were the same. Did Henri ever mention Becky? Had he shown any interest in her? I shook my head. Henri, I told them, never mentioned Becky. Was he married? Did he have a girlfriend? Henri never discussed his private life. Did I have any idea where he might have gone? I shrugged. Classes were canceled so everyone could attend the memorial service. The funeral would come later, after the police released the body. The church was filled to overflowing. The entire staff and student body must have been there. In the second pew right behind Becky's parents, Crystal, Madison, and Jen sobbed loudly throughout the service. The minister ended by quoting from William Blake's The Sick Rose. In what seemed to me to be a thinly-veiled reference to Henri, his deep voice rang out, His dark secret love does thy life destroy. I bit my lip. Things at school returned to normal. That is, routines were re-established. After such a tragedy, how could things be normal? I noticed Becky's friends huddling in corners, whispering. They were distracted and inattentive. Soon after the memorial service, they crowded around my desk after I had dismissed the class and asked if there had been any word from Monsieur Charbonneau. I shook my head. Why? They looked at each other and shrugged. Just curious, Jen said. The police should have caught him by now. Perv. She sniffed and turned to her friends, who nodded in agreement. You're sure of that? In this country, a person's innocent until proven guilty. There could be any number of reasons for Monsieur Charbonneau's absence. I began stuffing books and papers into my briefcase. Oh, we're sure, the corner of Crystal's mouth quirked upwards. How so? I couldn't help myself. What could these three possibly know? They looked at each other again and, as if on cue, stepped closer, almost circling the desk where I sat. Then Madison spoke. We all knew he had the hots for her. He was always staring at her and looking down her top. They giggled. 
Jen picked up the narrative. Yeah, he used to brush against her boobs. Oops, she clapped her hand over her mouth. Sorry, I mean her chest. Like this. She leaned over me and thrust her chest out, so her breasts almost brushed against my head. I pushed my chair back, stood, and stared at her. The girl snickered. I dropped my eyes to hide my discomfort. Becky must have imagined that. Oh, no, they said together in chorus. The night she died, he asked to meet her. I took a step back and appraised them coolly. How do you know all this? She told us. He said he wanted to talk to her about her test mark. She was failing French, so she figured she'd better go. But she was really antsy about meeting him. What time did she meet him? I held my breath. About eight. It was just starting to get dark. Probably on purpose so people wouldn't see them or recognize them. This from Madison. The others nodded vigorously. Did you tell the police? Of course. That's why they're looking for him. Crystal blinked, no doubt trying to look honest and sincere. Time to end this. Thanks, girls. They trooped out of the classroom. I waited a few minutes, then gathered up my case, locked the door, and headed down to my car in the parking lot. Vern Stemmler, the head of the phys ed department, caught up with me. Thought I'd have to blast this to get your attention. He chuckled and fingered the whistle hanging from a cord around his neck. Saw you talking to the terrible three when I walked past your classroom. Good thing you had the door open. I slowed my step. I always keep the door open when I'm speaking to students. Can't be too cautious. That bunch is toxic. Tell me about it. They could give the witches in Macbeth a run for their money. Vern said, Remember Dan Clark? I thought for a moment. The young teacher who was helping coach football, who left at Christmas? That's him. Vern stopped and turned to me. He left because of them. Really? What happened? I was beginning to get a sick feeling about this. Last fall, one day after practice, he was putting away the equipment. Crystal suddenly appeared. She walked over to him, bold as brass, and rubbed up against him. He jumped away from her, but she started grabbing him, if you get my meaning. He told her to stop, that he'd report her. She just smirked and asked who'd believe him. It was like a signal. Out jumped Jen and Madison. They said they'd seen the whole thing and would have him charged with sexual assault if he didn't give them a hundred dollars each. Madison showed him her cell phone. She'd taken a picture of Crystal up close against him. Dan said anyone seeing it would think he was feeling her up. I stopped and stared at Vern. I thought he left because he wanted to be closer to his family. That's the story he gave Ellie. Vern continued. I bumped into him at a coach's conference a couple of months back. He told me the whole story over a few beers. He was terrified they'd ruin his career or keep coming back for more money. You said Crystal, Madison, and Jen. Where was Becky, I asked. Wasn't she part of that group? Not when that happened. I saw her leaving practice with Greg Hayes. They were an item. Was she still going with him when she died? 
Yeah, we were away at a tournament. He just about went off the deep end when he heard. At least Clark's got a job in Hamilton. Want to know what I think? You look around, you'll find more guys had the same experience. Take it easy. And he loped off in the direction of his SUV. I drove home slowly, thinking about what Vern said. I poured a glass of red wine, put Beethoven on the CD player, and settled into my favorite armchair to think. I knew Henri hadn't killed Becky. The next morning, I stood by the classroom door after I'd dismissed my senior class. I stopped Greg Hayes as he was leaving. Do you have a moment? He nodded and followed me to my desk. I'm very sorry about Becky. I understand you were... I groped for the right word. Close. He dropped his head, but I saw the tear that coursed down his face. Angrily, he swiped at it. It's okay to cry, I said. You've suffered a terrible loss. I have to ask you something. I continued. The night Becky died, do you know where she was? His head jerked up. I know you were at the tournament. I just wondered if you knew where she was. She wasn't with Monsieur Charbonneau, was she? It was a statement, not a question. Greg's face turned white, and he wouldn't meet my eyes. You have to tell the truth. I know you're innocent, but so is Monsieur Charbonneau. Where was Becky the night she died? Who was she with? I, I, he faltered. His hand covered his eyes, and he dropped into a chair. I waited. And then, sobbing and choking, he poured out his story. He thought Becky was on the pill. The trip to Toronto for the abortion took most of the money he'd put away for university. Becky wasn't supposed to tell anyone. But she did tell someone, I said. He nodded. Crystal, Jen, and Madison. They came to me and to Becky separately and threatened to tell our parents if we didn't give them money. I thought they were Becky's friends. She thought so, too he said. I guess that's why she told them. So what did you do? We said no. Becky told them if they said anything to our parents, she'd go to the police and tell them about the blackmail. She said she'd give details of what they did to Mr. Clark. Greg said he thought they'd pulled the same stunt on a couple of other male teachers, but he couldn't be sure. He left, and a few minutes later, after organizing some materials for my afternoon class, I followed. I was locking the classroom door when Madison sidled up to me, her eyes wide, her facial features arranged to communicate concern. I saw you talking to Greg. Is he okay? What do you think? He's had such a bad shock. We're really worried about him. He seemed pretty upset when he was talking to you. How do you know? Were you spying on him? After hearing Greg's story, I was in no mood to play games with the girls. Her face turned red. I would never do that. I was walking past the classroom and saw him sitting there talking to you. I just wondered how he's doing, like if he said anything. He said a lot of things. Why are you so curious? Forget it. She spat out the words and stalked away. 
I watched her go. I'll bet you're worried, I thought. In fact, I think you're scared. I could feel the corners of my mouth turn up in a small smile of satisfaction. But it's when people feel threatened that they're dangerous, and I was under no illusions about my own safety. I went to Ellie's office, closed the door, and told her what Greg had told me and my suspicions. She placed a call to our police chief. When I got home, I made a phone call of my own. Later that evening, I was marking essays at home when there was a knock on my door. It was Madison. Can I come in? I need to talk to you. I blocked the doorway. We can talk here. What's on your mind? What did Greg Hayes tell you? Is that what this is about? He's a liar and a sleaze, she said. You don't even know what we were talking about, so how do you know he's a liar? Maybe we were discussing his English mark. There was a movement in the bushes. Come out, Jen, Crystal. I know you're there. Two hands pushed the shrubs aside and Jen emerged. She turned to pick up something from the ground. Metal gleamed in the porch light. She'd brought a golf club. If he said anything about us, it's all lies, she gripped the club. And you'd better not say anything either. We don't care if you are a teacher. I took a step back and stumbled against the door frame. I put my hand on it to steady myself. Jen swung the club menacingly. A bit dark to be playing golf, isn't it? Without waiting for an answer, I turned to the bushes on the other side of the porch. And what have you brought to the party, Crystal? The same weapons you used on poor Becky? There was a crash as Crystal leapt from her hiding place and swung a baseball bat, missing me but hitting the large flower pot by the door and smashing it. I jumped to one side and ducked instinctively to avoid being hit by flying dirt and shards of terracotta. The noise alerted Molson, who began barking furiously and growling. You don't want to mess with that dog. He's the one who found Becky's body. He knows your scent. It was a long shot, but it worked. They looked at each other. That moment was all the time I needed. I shouted, Call the police! Lights went on next door as my neighbor stepped into the yard to quiet Molson. The girls didn't wait. They ran, leaving the club and bat behind. From behind me, Henri touched my arm. The police are on their way. I heard everything. Once we'd given our statement to the police, Henri and I shared a bottle of wine and toasted our future. His trip to Calgary had been a success. They are hiring teachers there. Henri already has a job for next September, and I have an interview lined up. We'll be able to live together and teach in two different schools. Small towns like Hidden Harbor are not ready for a gay couple to live openly. And that was Sugar and Spice by Joan O'Callaghan, brought to you by Carrick Publishing, featured in 13, an anthology of crime stories by the Maydams of Mayhem. We hope you've enjoyed today's item for readers on the run.
To wrap up today's section of Dead to Rights, the podcast, I want to do two more giveaways. And the first one is a giveaway of a Smashwords gift certificate. To qualify for that giveaway, you need to go to our Dead to Rights Facebook page, look for the question that asks for the name of one other author in the book 13, an anthology of crime stories. And if you name Catherine Astolfo, if you name Melody Campbell, Catherine Dunphy, or any of the authors in that book at our Facebook page, Dead to Rights, you will win a Smashwords gift certificate. And the third and final giveaway for today is a copy of the printed book, 13, an anthology of crime stories. And to qualify to win that one, to qualify for the draw on that one, go to our Facebook page, Dead to Rights, look for the question, what was the French teacher's first name? He was Monsieur Charbonneau, and his first name was Henri. If you go to our Facebook page and you answer Henri, you will qualify for the draw to win a printed copy of 13, an anthology of crime stories by the Maydams of Mayhem. And that's it for today. So thank you all for coming to our podcast, Dead to Rights. A little bit of a long podcast this week. It won't usually be this long. But um, we didn't want to miss out on any of the great stories and advice that Joan O'Callaghan had for us. So we hope you've enjoyed and thank you for joining us. Dusty road, man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rock.